Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 256. Today, we're talking about the power of self-compassion with Kristen Neff. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast, now with over a million downloads. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide for breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back, dear listener. I hope this season finds you well. We are right around the Christmas season here. You know, whatever you celebrate, it's a time of taking stock of family, thinking about lightness, you know, maybe even thinking about the new year, spiritual reflection, all kinds of, it's it's a time of reflection, I think. That's how it is for me anyway. Maybe it is for you. And in just a moment, I'm going to be offering you a very special replay of a conversation I had in 2017 with Kristen Neff. And she is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research. She's conducted the first empirical studies on self-compassion over a decade ago. And in conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she's developed an empirically supported eight-week training program called the Mindful Self-Compassion and offers workshops on self-compassion worldwide. And, you know, this 
piece I think is so important to bring back, right? That the research shows that our harsh self-criticism does not work. It does not help us grow and become better parents. And in fact, it really does the opposite. So we're going to talk about what is your self-talk like when you mess up and how could you offer yourself the same kindness that you would a dear friend. And this is a very, very powerful conversation. So I'm so excited for you to join me at the table as I talk to Dr. Kristen Neff. Kristen, I'm so thrilled to have you on the Mindful Mama podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Your work on self-compassion is so groundbreaking as far as shifting the way that we think about um, what it takes to sort of grow and what it takes to thrive and shifting attitudes, hopefully, bit by bit, they're, they're seeping into the culture. But what brought you to this research for you and your own life? What, what made you interested in this? Yeah, well, you know, I certainly didn't invent the idea. Um, I actually learned about um, self-compassion at a local mindfulness group I was going to where I was learning meditation. And uh, the group I was going to really emphasized uh, self-compassion and the importance of being kind, supportive with yourself. Um, so I really started practicing it and it, it changed my life almost immediately. I, I couldn't believe the difference it made just learning to, again, be there for myself, support myself, give myself courage, encouragement, kindness, comfort when I was upset. It, it just, it was like I had this resource that I didn't even realize I had. Um, and I suppose, you know, my, my contribution was that I had done some work. I'd actually do, done two years of postdoctoral training with one of the country's leading uh, self-concept researchers. And I, I'd been looking at self-esteem and you know, a lot of the problems with the self-esteem literature, it's not so much that self-esteem is bad, but how we get it is not necessarily very healthy. And I just thought, well, self-compassion is such a nice alternative to self-esteem because it's a way of feeling good about yourself, you know, but it doesn't require feeling better than others or being special and above average. So I kind of, you know, gave it a shot and developed a scale to measure it and started the research ball rolling. And now it just has a huge life of its own. It's really quite exciting. Wow. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you really point out in the book how self-esteem and self-compassion are different. So can you talk a little bit to that? What what is the difference and and why why is self-compassion trump (laughs) self-esteem? Right. Well, um, so self-esteem is basically, you know, partly depends how you define it. If you mm-hmm. think of unconditional self-worth, well, then it's a little bit more like self-compassion. But typically, um, self-esteem focuses on how much you like yourself, like how positive your self-evaluation is, right? And, um, you know, most of us do some pretty nasty things to feel good about ourselves. For instance, why do bullies in early middle school start to bully? So that they can feel good about themselves, so they can feel bigger and smarter and cooler and stronger than that little wimpy kid they're picking on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, prejudice stems from self, the need for high self-esteem. And the other problem with self-esteem is that for most people, it's contingent on success. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe you have high self-esteem on a good hair day, but not so much on a bad hair day. 
or when you succeed at a work project, but then your self-esteem deserts you when you have a failure. So it's 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 more contingent and it's more based on social comparison, right? The need to be better than others to feel okay about myself. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we know self-esteem is is good for well-being. People are less depressed, less anxious, happier really when they have high self-esteem. But the way they get their self-esteem is not always so healthy. So self-compassion it really offers all the same mental health benefits of self-esteem in the other word, in, in the sense that you know you aren't judging yourself, you don't feel bad about yourself, you feel like a worthy human being. But it's not based on being better than others. It's just based on being like a flawed, imperfect human being like everyone else. You know, I can check that box. I can do that. <laughs> it's, um, it's not conditional, right? Um, yet the idea is right when self-esteem fails you and that's when you, you know, make a mistake or you do something wrong. Um, self-esteem, self-compassion steps in to pick up the pieces. Self-compassion mm. says, you know, hey, you failed. Well, it happens. I'm still here for you. I still care about you regardless of whether or not you failed or succeeded. So uh, we know, for instance, through research that the sense of self-worth linked to self-compassion is much more stable than the sense of self-worth linked to self-esteem, which tends to go up and down a lot more. So you might you might say it has the benefits without the pitfalls. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I guess the way you're talking about it, you know, when we look at self-esteem, it's really something that's based on judgment, right? Like I judge myself as this yes. place and, and you're at this place. And it's all about kind of uh, judging where where you are, whether you're good or bad on the scale and all about, you know, comparing to others. And then just looking at ourselves with self-compassion, obviously, is is just having that any understanding that it's hard. It's hard to be a human being. It's it's not easy. <laughs> That's right. And that and that making mistakes and imperfections is actually part of what makes us human. Right. So when we're on the self-esteem treadmill, it's almost as if we keep chasing after perfection. Like if we mm. try that a little bit harder, maybe we'll be perfect or at least close to it. Whereas self-compassion just abandons that agenda and we just learn to support ourselves as we are and to feel worthy as we are. You know, we don't have to accomplish anything to be worthy. Um, All human beings are worthy of kindness and respect. And then, of course, it doesn't mean we don't also want to grow and reach our full potential, but we don't grow and reach our full potential because we aren't good enough as we are. We want to grow and reach our full potential because we care about ourselves. We want to be happy. So the motivation of self-compassion is quite different than the motivation of self-esteem. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing that people, there's a, I think there's kind of a fear of it, right? Like people are worried that they're not going to, if I'm, not, if I'm compassionate with myself, if I'm not hard on myself and harsh on myself, then I'm not going to become better because I am flawed and I need to come become better. But you point out in your book that stu- research says that it's actually easier to admit areas of improvement and make improvement when we are self-compassionate. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, so first of all, research shows that the number one block to self-compassion, as you say, is the fear that, you know, we'll be unmotivated, we're going to lose our edge, we're not going to reach our goals. We really think that the only thing that gets us moving is fear of self-punishment, you know, 
But there is another thing that gets us moving, and that's kindness and encouragement, right? So if, if you think back to maybe, you know, high school matter, maybe you're on a sports team or in drama club or something, maybe you had the experience of, of two different types of coaches. One was the really mean coach. He said, you're, you know, you'll never amount to anything. You lazy, good for nothing, and yells at you all the time. Well, it is kind of going to work, right? You're going to want to avoid the coach yelling at you, so you're going to try, but it, it backfires in the long run because you give, you know, you lose faith in yourself, you get nervous because you're agitated, you have a lot of performance anxiety, and at the end of the day, you're more likely to give up. But hopefully, you also had some experience of a really kind, encouraging coach, someone who said, yeah, it's okay, you know, you, you, you messed up, but here's how to make it better, um, you know, who gave you constructive criticism, who believed in you, who encouraged you, who supported you. Now, typically, those types of coaches we learn a lot more from and we're a lot more motivated by. So it's really just learning to, again, be this good, supportive inner coach inside as opposed to the mean one who yells at us all the time. You know, So both work, but what research definitely shows that it's more effective to be compassionate um, and that when you fail, you're more likely to pick yourself up and try again. You're more, less afraid of failure and you're more likely to keep trying even when things are difficult. And that's really what we need with motivation. So you're really talking about, and I, it's amazing to me how many things come down to this. I'm very interested in the way we learn and the way yes. we uh, act in life. But are you, what, what I'm hearing you saying is that it really is coming down to that intrinsic internal motivation versus the external motivation. You're kind of pointing out the difference between the like fear of you know fear of the punish you know carrot and the stick kind of thing versus yes. I want to do this, whatever I want to do, because this is just life and this is what I want to do. And, and it's okay for me to make mistakes because I have this compassion. Yeah. Yes. And that's a very good point. In, in an odd way, self-criticism is a type of extrinsic motivation. You aren't doing it because you want to learn and grow. You're doing it because you're afraid of punishment. So even though it comes from the inside, it's still an extrinsic motivator. Uh, there's tons of research showing the intrinsic motivation, you know, wanting to learn and grow because you're curious and you're interested and, you know, failure is a learning opportunity, that that's much more effective and much more sustainable over time. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. So this interests me because then it goes, you know, so it goes back to parenting and kind of how we were raised and things like that. And I feel like in our society and in our culture, we go, we're, we have a long history of um, very authoritarian families yeah. where there's a lot of harsh criticism. There's a lot of punishment there, you know, in, in years past, there's whippings and beatings, you know, yes. and, and, and real mm-hmm. extreme, like external um, punishment for trying to sort of get people to do what they, they want, children to do what they want to do. So how does self, how does, you know, if we want self-compassion, right? So the opposite of that is our self-criticism. So does, where does that come from? How does that, how is that shaped in our lives, that internal voice? Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, I think there are a lot of influences, but certainly we know that one is how our parents raised us. So people who are raised by very critical parents, you know, unsurprisingly tend to be more self-critical. Um, you know, people who are raised by with secure attachment to their parents that knew that their parents would, you know, accept them unconditionally, um, they're more likely to have self-compassion than those who, you know, their their love was contingent or, you know, some people had really abusive parents and they're the ones who, who struggle the most with self-compassion because it wasn't modeled for them at all. Um, but I think it's not just parents. I also think there is a lot of pressure in our our culture to be perfectionistic. And I think a lot of the messages we get in the media are, you know, you got to do it, you got to succeed, you know, in order, got to buy my product in order to, to be a worthwhile person. So I think we're also influenced by those messages. Um, you know, and, and what I think is happening with self-compassion, and this kind of relates to the whole topic of, of parenting, is we're really kind of reparenting ourselves, right? When we fail or we're struggling or we're afraid, we actually give ourselves the type of unconditional love, warm support, nourishment that, you know, maybe we didn't get from our parents. Hopefully we did, but maybe we didn't. Regardless, now as adults, we can give it to ourselves. And so we start to learn to do things like tune in to how we're speaking to ourselves. What type of language are we using? What's our tone of voice? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it harsh? And then we actually learn to you know, create an internal dialogue that kind of represents this ideally compassionate parent or friend to a child. Oh my gosh, there's so many things I want to respond to in what you said and that like, <laughs> you know, I, that being able to even be in touch with that internal voice, obviously we need to be able to sort of hear it and see it and and that mindfulness. And that's one of the three, you know, parts of your, your self. Yeah, and, and it's, 
it's the first step. Yeah. Not, none of this is possible without mindfulness. Mindfulness is the foundation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, but then I'm thinking about the parents who are listening to you and saying like, you know, and we want to think that we love our kids unconditionally. Like, of course, everyone might say, I love my kids unconditionally. But when we, what happens is when our kids sometimes have like really big, difficult feelings like anger and, you know, frustration and they go, you know, they're losing it maybe yeah. at us, our our behavior kind of shows that it's, you know, it's, it's really hard to then love your kids unconditionally in that moment, especially, yeah. is it is it true? Is it true that it, maybe especially if we have trouble accepting our, our own difficult feelings and having that compassion for ourselves? Um, yes. Well, so put it this way, you know, the link between how compassionate you are to yourself and how compassionate you are to others isn't actually that strong just because there, and also it's in a certain direction. So um, there, there are a lot of people who are actually very kind and compassionate to others who treat themselves badly. So it's actually not really true that you have to be kind to yourself to be good to others. There's lots of people who do it. Um, it's more that it's just hard to sustain being kind to others if you aren't kind to yourself. So, so what happens, you know, if you, let's say you're a caregiver or a parent, what you need to do with your parent and your child starts um, the screaming or losing it or something is you actually first need to give yourself compassion and that will give you the resources needed to sustain compassion for your child, right? So it's, it's not like you need to have the compassion in order to be to be compassionate, but it's so much easier to get thrown off track, to lose it, to be reactive when you aren't saying, oh, it's so difficult that my child's losing it. And first, like, tend to your own needs, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first before you try to calm your child down. Um, and that's certainly something I learned with, with my son, who was autistic, um, that, you know, if I lost it, and let's face it, I did, sometimes I would lose it. He would actually just get more agitated very quickly if, if my if my way of being with him was agitated. But when I could remember to give myself compassion and just you know remember this is so hard for me right now, and you know kind of care for myself first, then um, not only would I have more resources to attend to him, but he actually read, fed off of my mood. And if I was calmer, he was calmer. So um, you know I, I think it's absolutely essential for parents to have self-compassion, especially when they're struggling with their child. If you just try to say, oh, I love my child unconditionally without tending to your own needs first, it's going to be really hard to sustain that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to go back to what you're saying about sort of our inner dialogue and kind of noticing our inner dialogue. And you write in your book that like, if we had control of over our maladaptive thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, you wouldn't still have them, which I thought was such like a wonderful, like, duh, a statement. Like, why, of course, don't we realize that, right? Like, clearly, yeah. we don't have complete control of our actions or else I'd only act in ways that we approved of. I mean, that was so... I love those times when it's just like, of course, of course. So can you talk to that and tell us what you mean a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, so I think this comes from the illusion of independence and control. Like somehow we think we're these in, totally independent units who have complete free will and we can do what we want and be perfect and get it right all the time. 
Um, but that's just not reality. We are interdependent in so many ways. I mean, the weather, what we've eaten, what that person just said to us, um, you know, the, the political climate, um, my, my body, the fact that my hormones are, you know, going a certain way, which I didn't choose. There are so many causes and conditions that lead us to think as we do, that lead us to have the emotional reactions we do. So really, we don't have a lot of control. And, and you know, one of the biggest gifts of mindfulness practice, and especially meditation practice, is kind of realizing that, that this, this idea that we have control is an illusion. But although we don't have total control, it doesn't mean we can't do anything either. So what we can learn to do is learn how to relate with kindness to whatever's arising. And, you know, we can, we can make a couple adjustments and we, we can do what we can. It's not like we can't do anything. It's not like we're totally passive, but we just need to realize that perfection is actually not attainable. So let's do the best we can and kind of, you know, care for ourselves. And when we make a mistake, just try to be understanding and give ourselves support and encouragement so that we're maximizing the conditions out of which hopefully skillful action will grow. You know, you can't really control yourself, but you can try to plant the seeds that are more likely to grow into to better actions. So it's just a different model. It's more it's more of a more of a natural model, which is true, right? A plant doesn't grow on its own. It needs water and it needs soil, but you also can plant seeds of one plant or another. So that's what we're really doing uh, with compassion is we're just trying to water the seeds of, of wholesomeness and not spend as much time watering the seeds that, that lead to bad behavior or, you know, harmful behavior. Mm, absolutely. Just like Thich Nhat Hanh says, we practice selective watering. I love that. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, one thing that you brought up in your book that I love this is uh, a little um, equation from, I think you said it, maybe it came from Shinzen Young, which is suffering equals pain times resistance. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, 
tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Right. And so he's using the term um, suffering in a particular way, which is basically there's pain, emotional pain, physical pain, uh, mental pain. But suffering is kind of how it's directly a result of how much we resist the fact that pain is here. So just to give a you know kind of a cliche example, if you're if you're stuck in a traffic jam, yeah, it's annoying, and maybe you're going to be late, and that's painful and annoying. But if you get really angry at the fact that you're at a traffic jam and feel like I shouldn't be caught in a traffic jam, all those shoulds and resistance to the fact that something is happening just make things that much worse. And there's a lot of research that shows that the more we resist what's happening, um, not only does it make it more intense, but it makes things last longer, right? So whether that resistance is by getting really angry and frustrated or whether the, re- or whether the resistance comes from avoidance and like a thought suppression, um, we know that the energy you give to a difficult thought or emotion by either uh, uh, suppressing it or reacting to it actually makes it stronger and makes it last longer. So it's so funny, my son, he, he, he's 15 now, and he, um, he hates self-compassion because he's like, <laughs> don't give me that self-compassion. <laughs> I don't want to accept the pain. And I'm like, okay, go for it. If you figure out a way how to make the pain go away, tell me about it, you know, but I don't think it's really possible. That's the thing. It just doesn't work. You know, we know it doesn't work. If pain is here, it goes away in its own time and we can try to help, you know, create optimal conditions for it to pass. We can't force it to go. And if we try to force it to go, it just makes it worse. You know, mm-hmm. so that's really a basic principle of, of life, really, that I think most people come to recognize in one way or another. Um, the good thing about self-compassion, so what self-compassion adds to mindfulness? It's mindfulness talks a lot about non-resistance, being with what is, in an accepting, non-judgmental way. But it doesn't necessarily, it kind of depends who's teaching the mindfulness, it doesn't necessarily talk about warmth and kindness and soothing. So in other words, um, uh, you know, yes, we need to accept what's here and not judge it, but it really helps if we say to ourselves, oh, this is so hard for you, darling, I'm here for you, what can I do to help? You know, so that, that emotional warmth that actually, which helps us feel safe, which helps makes it easier not to resist. So mm-hmm. the mindfulness is key, but you know, in self-compassion on top of the mindfulness, there's the kindness. And then there's also kind of the wisdom of recognizing common humanity, right? Just recognizing that, hey, we're all imperfect, we all struggle, we're, we're all interdependent. You know, and so, so you might think kindness and w- the wisdom of common humanity they do arise naturally out of mindfulness practice, but if we bring them in explicitly and te- intentionally, it just uh, makes it uh, more powerful in the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I coach women, and that's we work with this so much because there, we tend to be so 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 hard on ourselves. I I was thinking about you and in your story, and I imagine that 
I imagine there were times as you were raising your son, as you said, he has autism, that you, I imagine you must have been very grateful to have found these concepts and to have found these practices throughout your your time raising your son. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how I would have coped without them. I mean, the, the very day he got diagnosed, I was actually on my way to a meditation retreat, and I had been practicing mindfulness and self-compassion for about seven years. Um, and it's so funny, you know, my husband, I said to him, you know, don't we all cancel, cancel my retreat? We'll process this together. And he said, no, go to your retreat, do your <laughs> self-compassion stuff, and then come back and help me. Because he'd seen, you know, how useful it was to help cope with challenge. Mm. So, you know, when I was at the retreat, all these feelings were coming up for me. You know, you know, feelings you think you aren't supposed to have as a mother. Feelings of disappointment, even some irrational shame, fear. And this is toward the person you love most in the world, your, your precious child, you know. But because of my practice, I knew that, my, that the only thing I really could do was to let it all in, to not judge any thoughts or feelings I was having as good or bad, just to let them arise. But, but most importantly, to just give myself great love and kindness and support and compassion for how hard it was and just really kind of really trying to be there for myself, um, helping me to, to feel like, you know, safe. And also, you know, remembering common humanity. Yeah, so it was not all parents, they didn't face autism, but usually parents have some form of struggle or another with their kids. It could be other physical conditions, mental conditions, just conflictual relationships. It's not, you know, because for a while, for a few moments, I started to go down the path of self-pity. You know, why me? Why can't I have a normal child like everyone else? And then I realized, what does that mean, a normal child? I mean, there's no child who's normal. It's just kind of a particular flavor of, you know, some of the challenge. And so when I was able to do that, it just made it so much easier, um, first of all, to accept the autism, to accept the challenges that it that it posed for me. Um, but really, ultimately, to accept Rowan, it just gave me so much more ability. The more I could accept myself and accept my difficult feelings and accept my, my pain around it, the more I had available to be with him as he was and to give to him. So I don't know how I've gotten through. I'm sure I would have, but it would have been a lot harder, I can tell you. Yeah. I love what you're saying about this acceptance, right? Like we, what we resist persists and that that self-acceptance that is so essential to, to underlying this as parents. So what what do you what advice do you give parents who uh, want to practice more self-compassion and, and maybe want to just be able to be more accepting of their kids? Yeah. So again, the, the first thing to do is to not only accept but, you know, it's more than acceptance. It's actively soothing, comforting, supporting, providing warmth to ourselves. So things like putting your hands on your heart, saying words, the types of encouraging, supportive words you might say to a friend, um, really actively kind of reparenting ourselves. Like, you know, maybe if you were lucky and you had a good mother, when you were upset, she would you know, give you a hug and, and say just the right things and the tone of her voice would be just what the tone you needed to hear to know that it was safe and it was going to be okay. Well, whether or not you actually had that type of mother, we can learn to do that with ourselves to really say, what do I need right now to comfort and care for myself in the moment and learn to, to start to give it to us. You know, in addition to accepting all our pain and accepting all our mm -hmm. imperfections, which is really key. 
Um, and so I, I really, um, you know, counsel parents when you're feeling like you want to tear your kid's head off and that happens, you know, usually the first thought is guilt. Oh my God, I shouldn't be having the thought that I want to tear my kid's head off. I'm a bad mother. Then you might try to, or bad father, then you might try to like just love your little kid a little bit more conditionally in that moment. You know, how well does that work? <laughs> really, a lot of it, especially as a parent, is giving yourself permission mm. to validate and acknowledge your own pain. Mm. You know, I think parenting is supposed to be a one-way street, that it's just about caring for the child, but you have to care for yourself as a parent. You know, you have to say, this is so hard for me. I'm feeling so overwhelmed. And maybe, you, you know, put your hands on your heart or if you can find, we find that physical uh, uh, expressions of, kindness are really powerful because the body is actually designed to respond to them because we're mammals. So if you can find some way of touching yourself that really lets your body know, hey, you're here, and it actually starts to change your physiology, you start to feel more safe. Um, you start to, to feel, once you feel more safe, you actually have more options in terms of thinking how to respond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that first before you try to deal with your kid. But if it's just one way and you think you're just supposed to be this perfect parent, you're just supposed to give, give, give and not care about your own needs, it really won't be very sustainable. No, no. I mean, you, listeners take Kristen's advice and see her example of when she heard that that diagnosis that you went on a retreat and you took a number of days to yourself. And I, and I I think that's a really great example to take that time to really ground yourself. That's beautiful. But you know what I'm talking about is a little difference in self care. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of people are told for parents you should have self care. Well, let's face it, self-care isn't always possible. We aren't mm -hmm. always in a position where we can go on a retreat or we may not have the time or the money to get a massage or take a yoga class. So self-care is good. You know, do as much self-care as you can. But regardless of that, you know, the problem with self-care is that all happens off the job. Mm -hmm. right? What we need is we need a way to be there for ourselves in the midst of the struggle when you're with your kid. When, when, the, when the conflict is happening, when the tantrum is happening, when, you know, when the emotions are there and present in the moment, that's when you need self-compassion. So you can do simple practices like, um, you know, I did this, I used to do this on my, I still do it, but <laughs> when my son was tantruming, right? Just breathing in for yourself, breathing in compassion for yourself, breathing in wishes for your own well-being for yourself. And then you can breathe out for your child. So it doesn't have to be one way, you know, in for me, out for you, me and out for you. Little practices like that you can do, which, you know, don't take any time or money. <laughs> we done right there in the moment to help you get through those difficult times. So, so really the biggest thing parents need to do is just to remember, validate the fact that it's hard for them to help, you know, give themselves kindness and comfort and care and support in the midst of their challenges. And that is actually what's going to you know, most enable them to be there for their kids. Yeah. Yes. And, and after we lose it too, that come to do those same yeah. things. So then, and that is what can enable us to grow and change and make different choices as best we can. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so like, uh, you know, a lot of research people, people think that if you're self-compassionate, it means letting yourself off the hook. It's exactly the opposite. Research shows that when it's safe, to admit you failed because you have self-compassion, you're much more likely to admit it when you've made a mistake and you're actually much more likely to try to repair the situation. 
again, because you, you aren't like fighting against this feeling of, oh my God, if I admit that I did this, I will be flooded with shame. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to blame someone else, right? When it's safe to acknowledge you're imperfect and you make mistakes, you're much more likely to do so. So. Oh, Kristen, oh my gosh, I could talk to you about for hours on this. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for the the work that you've done, like making this, showing that through your, you know, research that this is so, you know, that these teachings yeah. that people have taught for many years are in fact true. And I, I really, really appreciate your work and what you've done. So how can um, the listener find out more about you and what you're doing besides getting Getting her, get her amazing book, Self Compassion. You'll love it. Well, that's the place to start. And I've, I've actually made my uh, website a free resource. If you just Google Self Compassion, you'll find it, selfcompassion.org. Um, so I've got the research on there. If you're a research nerd, I have guided meditations, I have exercises. Um, and and uh, in October, and there'll be a link on my website um, that we're, we're going to have an online self-compassion training course, like a shortened version of our eight-week course. It'll be eight weeks, but only an hour a week. So that might be something you could think about taking um, when we come out with our workbook that will also be on there. So I would just say go to my website and maybe even sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you out on notices when new things are available, including new meditations. Um, so that's probably the easiest place to start. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Kristen. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Hunter. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. I love what Dr. Kristen Neff says about self-compassion. It really is so important that we start to turn around this judgmental way of thinking about ourselves and, and really make this a practice, right? And to stop berating ourselves, start treating ourselves with kindness and model this for the next generation, right? They really need it too. So I'm so glad that you have listened to this episode and this powerful conversation and this powerful research. So, so important. So I would love to hear, see where you're listening to it. Take a screenshot of what uh, your device that you're listening and uh, tag me on Instagram or Facebook at Mindful Mama Mentor and let me know what your takeaways are. Or what are you going to do differently? How are you going to practice something different to make 2021 a more self-compassionate year for you? I really, really, truly want that for you. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I am wishing you peace and contentment and serenity during this crazy 2020 holiday season. Thank goodness 2020 is out of here and we are going to a new year with 2021. I'm so excited. By the way, next week, um, we're going to have a best of 2020 episode with the top five episodes from 2020 we're going to give you the best clips from the top five episodes of 2020 so if you want to reflect on those with me please join me for that episode um yeah and i will i'll be back in your ears then and i'm so excited for all the amazing guests we have in 2021 if you know a guest that would be amazing for the mindful mama podcast you can go to mindful mama mentor Dot com and on the about page there is a form to send me who you would like me to talk to i would love to talk to some some great people so wishing you peace wishing you well my friend thank you thank you so much for listening 
Namaste. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.